good, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Moving Into the Unknown. Today we move with Alan Christel, who's a bit of a legend in the space. He's an author. He's written a book called Creating Creativity. He also trained with Moshe Feldenkrais, uh, and that's Heidi's rooster in the background. Um, so Alan trained with Moshe Feldenkrais. He had an interesting history as an actor uh, involving wallpapering a room and then becoming a Feldenkrais practitioner. So it's amazing you know, how life can just take these detours into totally different worlds. And he'll share more about that. Um, so out of, as students, we're required to listen to a lot of awareness through movement classes and materials from legendary trainers. And Alan's work, I find very succinct and concise and his timing is just beautiful. So my experience of being on the floor with Alan has been very pleasurable and that's what drew me into his work. He's also been quite a legend in the space in that he's bringing something new to Feldenkrais. With the training now being in lockdown, and a lot of it is hands-on, um, the trainers have now been forced, in a way, to utilise Moshe's method and really adapt with the circumstances. So Alan's brought some virtual um, Feldenkrais work to the Feldenkrais world, and it's quite profound because um, a lot of the work is um, on the floor, so awareness through movement lessons. And then there's another aspect called functional integration, which is where the practitioner works one-on-one -on -one with the client. And that's hands-on. So now in this world where we haven't been allowed to touch each other, um, Alan's had to bring the virtual world into Feldenkrais, and he's done so in a really unique way by going through a functional integration session with each, with each of his trainees and having students watch on through Zoom. And then he goes on to, so he gets the feedback from the students and then he goes on to do a commentary to say why he did what he did. So it's like we're privy to some of the secrets of how this functional integration practice actually works. So I am getting enormous benefits from that. So we brought Alan here today to share with us about why he does what he does. How did you become, what I'm really interested in is how you became a trainer and how you're now having to evolve through this um, adaptation with the world. So hi, Helen. And hi, Heidi. I didn't even say hi to you. Hi, Heidi. Well, first, thanks for both of you having me here. I really appreciate that. And is the question how I became a trainer or how I became yeah. a practitioner? Or uh, both? Well, you were, yeah, well, we had got to follow on from that wallpaper story. So for the yeah, journey so, from yeah, wallpaper to yeah, a train. I, had, I really had no idea what I was getting into. I was an actor. And as um, Dale was saying, I, I was wallpapering my acting teacher's bathroom and I hurt my back. And he said, go see this Feldenkrais practitioner. And I'd read Awareness Through Movement at that point. And the thinking was very interesting, but the movements, they made no sense. To, I was moving like 25 times like that. You know, it made no sense to me at all. And... Um, <clears throat> I went to a chiropractor who kind of made me worse. And I thought, I'll try this Feldenkrais. And this is in New York City in 1979. Uh, so I was seven years old. No, I was a little older than that. And um, he was barely touching me. And I thought, what a waste of time and money. And my God, and, and 
when I got up, I had no pain and I was so shocked. And I said, what did you do? And he said, you did it. And I said, no, really, what did you do? And he said, really, I was helping your body do what it's doing. And I thought, oh, it's a secret. And three days later, I was driving on a road in New York called the FTR Drive, which is kind of like a pinball machine for cars. And all of a sudden, I, by the way, the pain was gone. And now I'm driving on this road and I realized I'm not getting angry when people cut me off now. But what's going on? And I went back to this Feldenkrais practitioner and he touched me with the same quality, but in different places, different ways. And I got up and it was like astounding to me. And I, I actually went back one more time. And after that, I thought I wanted, I thought I could do Feldenkrais instead of this interior construction business I had and pursue acting. And of course, I, I stayed in that business through my training to pay for it, but I really had no idea what I was getting into. And to the point where like at the, in the first week of the training, I said, when do we start touching each other? And they said in the third year, and I was like, what am I doing here? You know, but it was like getting out of New York City for the summer, so it was fine. And then uh, I really, you know, I really had the internal, I had two strong feelings during the training. One was, I don't understand any of this. And the other one was, I'm going to be good at this. So there were, it was a real paradox for me. And after the training, well, I started teaching classes during the training. Um, again, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And after the training, I quit everything else I was doing and started a private practice. And I was really fortunate within a year and a half, I had a waiting list. And so I was seeing 35 people and I had 80 people a week in classes all of a sudden. And honestly, I can't say I knew what I was doing. You know, and then, of course, I became an assistant trainer pretty early on. And then I guess in 1994, I think I became a trainer and I could have, you know, technically I could have become a trainer sooner, but I didn't feel ready. Like I had a couple of friends who became trainers, Jeff Haller and Yvonne Jolie, and they said, you should be a trainer. And I said, I don't feel ready yet. And uh, I finally did feel ready at least to apply. But then when I became a trainer, I didn't feel ready. I was working, but it took me about three years to kind of fill the shoes of that job and feel like I was doing it. So, but honestly, I had no idea that any of these things would occur. And I'm quite happy that they have and fortunate that they have as well. So, yeah. So Dale mentioned your ATMs, which I also enjoy. And there's something, I don't know, there's something really crisp and fresh in the way you present them. So I'm wondering if you really didn't know what you were doing, did you have to evolve your style or it just seemed to mm. evolve itself? Oh no, I definitely had to evolve it. And I think the evolution of my teaching style increased exponentially when I became an assistant trainer and a trainer, because then I was, I, I was all of a sudden having to articulate and explain and understand why am I doing what I was doing? So in the beginning, I trusted the lessons, you know, I just gave over to that. And if people would ask me questions, sometimes we don't need to talk about that. Just feel what you're feeling. That's enough. We all know that answer, right? And then after a while, I started to think there's a difference between just teaching ATM and teaching someone to be a teacher of awareness through movement. And that means I need to be able to 
guide people to experiences that understand more of what an ATM is made up of, its structure, what makes it an ATM is versus a, a movement exploration or choreography of some kind, which are different. And the more I studied that, the more I got interested in the structure of awareness through movement. Because, you know, if Moshe started a few talks saying, now I'm going to explain functional integration. And he would go ping, 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 ping. And at the end he'd go, and that's functional integration. And it was kind of like, okay, where was I, you know? Uh, but he never said, and now I'm going to explain awareness through movement. And so that was like one aspect of, I guess, my style, my ability of teaching how it developed. I think both of you have probably listened to recordings that I've done. And there's an interesting aspect to those too, which also helped informed my teaching and learning, which is those recordings are done every year in Switzerland. Right, so it's done in English and Swiss Deutsch. And then we have to pull out all the Swiss Deutsch. But because I'm dealing with an audience that even if their English is good, it's their second language, I'm speaking a bit slower. I'm being careful of the words I choose. And if I say something one way, if I repeat it, I'll always say it a different way, which became like a really important aspect of teaching lessons. So of course I do that when I'm teaching in Australia or America, um, that, that that style of teaching has influenced me and helped me a lot in terms of how the lessons get presented, I would say. And, uh, and probably the third aspect that I can talk about, which is probably less in my recordings, but was there a lot in the beginning, was my humor, which got me into a lot of trouble. And, uh, I've learned to navigate that well and to kind of contain it in a way that it's useful as a teaching tool, as opposed to just making some silly offhanded joke at the wrong moment, which I did too often. So, so. It, I think that's what's had the way you were approaching the virtual functional integration be very crisp and clear as well because of the consideration of the listener and mm. how it's landing for people. I think that's mm. what's so unique about your work. Mm. It's really had you stand out from um, other ATMs that I've listened to. And, and thank you also for saying the Swiss, that it's for the Swiss, because there's been a couple of people talking. I'm like, I don't know what language that is there. <laughs> that's been really good too. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Um, and also, just for the listeners, Alan's got a lot of work available on his website, Uncommon Sensing, which I think attributes to the humour that you've, you've just addressed. Um, and the sets are also great, the way you've done those, because there's little snippets of talks of the training. So there's like some five-minute snippets of just speaking, addressing the class, and then the lesson and the lessons are all quite sequential. So I felt um, like with reversibility, I felt a real sense of accomplishment um, mm, after yeah. I said I could actually confidently roll onto my belly with books on my feet. It's really great. It's just what I need. You know, you, you just said something that I, I think is probably one of the most important aspects of awareness and movement that sometimes gets left aside, which is that someone feels the feeling of success. Right? That, that a lesson isn't about one thing. 
It's about multiple things. And even if there's a movement reference that the lesson seems to revolve around, if it's just one thing, that can be a recipe for disaster. Where if there are two or three or even four different places where what's success, where, where I can notice a change, where I feel a difference that's in a positive direction. That's the beginning of shifting our self-image, of changing the way we feel about ourselves. And even if someone looks around and go, I can't do that, but wait a minute, this aspect of the lesson improved a lot. And I think that's kind of essential to the method at its foundation for people to be able to have that experience. Dale mentioned your um, website, Uncommon Sensing, and I love, I, most practitioners I've come across, there's something relational to movement, whereas yours is sensing. Can you speak about the choosing of that title? Uncommon Sensing, it actually came from Australia. I was in Western Australia in Perth with a friend, and we were at a farm, and we, I was talking to this old Aussie farmer, and he was like, what do you do, mate? You know, and I was explaining it to him. And he, he responded by saying, ah, just sounds like common sense. And I said, but it's uncommon. It's an uncommon way of sensing. And I thought, ooh, that's a great title, Uncommon Sensing. Because we all know how to sense things and we can all get better at it. But the, the, the structure of an awareness to movement lesson brings us to places that's really we can say uncommon, or I could use another word and say there's a high degree of novelty in it. That it's like, oh, I didn't know that. That's a different way of thinking, feeling, sensing, and moving. So it, it, it came from good old Oz. Thank you. Yeah. And the other unique aspect of your classes is this thing about being kind to yourself and liking yourself more, which, you know, I remember first hearing, it was like, so I was on the floor in an unusual position thinking, liking myself more like this, that's interesting. And you're bringing also the next um, title of your book, well, tentative title of your book about learning to be more intentional, intentional acts of kindness. And you certainly, displayed that with us or exhibited that with us in the way in your generosity um in being with us coming to the fig meeting at 1 a.m um (laughs) giving us books after you finished after we finished our last meeting and yeah so could share more about how that arose well the the idea of liking myself liking ourselves more came out of actually a workshop that's called uncommon sensing and that's one of my workshop titles, as well as my website title. And uh, as it was about self-image. And as I explored self-image, I started to think it revolved around a fairly simple idea, without being reductionistic, that our self-image is a reflection of how much I like myself or how much I don't like myself. So if I like myself, I have a good self-image. And if I don't, not such a great self-image. And as, as I played with this idea more, I started to think this is my job to help people like themselves more. And if, in a funny way, it really dramatically changed my interactions with people because I no longer felt that any encounter that I had of being intimidated by someone or feeling lost and not knowing what to do 
put me into a sense of struggle anymore. It put me more into a sense of, huh, how do I help this person like themselves more? And on one hand, it can be seen more as an attitude of approaching oneself, myself in a lesson, yourself, or another person if I'm giving a lesson. But it's, I also utilize it in a very specific way in terms of in movement, moving in a way that you like the way it feels. And that's a really interesting question that if I ask that question during a lesson while people are moving, and I, I say, look, just see if anything changes when I ask this question. Are you moving in a way that you like the way it feels? And for some people, it's like, no, it's the same, great. But for many people, it changes something. And if it changes something, I think that's significant. And I don't think this idea of moving in a way that we like the way it feels is just relegated to a, a lesson. It's something we can do in all our movements every day in our life. And of course, as Dale was saying, that's led me to, to writing a book called Practice Intentional Acts of Kindness. And it's a guidebook. It's about how we can be kinder to ourselves and kinder to others. And there's actually exercises in it. And moving in a way that we like the way it feels is one of the exercises that's, that you can pursue in it. And, um, you know, the idea of liking ourselves more, I found it's something I've done for many years and it's a valuable, important first approximation. And, but that's sort of like a relationship with myself. What can I do in a way that I can come to like myself more? Other than the normal external things of a new car, relationship, house, whatever. But it's like, how do I do it so it comes from the inside through movement? But then I thought, well, how can that ability to like ourselves more become more relational, connected to other people in the world? And that's where I actually discovered, I can't say by accident, but it, it, didn't, it wasn't like an aha. It was something that built up over time that whenever I did something that was some kind of act of kindness towards someone else, I realized I liked myself more. So I started investigating this idea of how can we create more kindness? And the funny thing is when I was writing the book, to be honest with you, when I got to the part that was about being kinder to ourselves, I got stuck. And it was like, oh, I, I, maybe I'm not so good at this. Maybe probably I spent another three or four years practicing that before I went back to the book and trying to help others. Because if, if I can't do it myself, what's the point of writing a book and talking about something like that, you know? And, you know, I always, I have this kind of fantasy fear that the book is going to be a great success. That's not the fearful part. The fearful part is I'll be interviewed by someone and they'll say, so, are you kind? Uh-oh. And of course, I'm doing the best I can and I keep getting better at it. And I find both with liking myself more and being kinder to people, that the more kind of hurdles that I overcome in liking myself more and being kinder, that the next hurdle is even harder. So that each layer that I uncover myself demands that I have to figure something out in myself even more to be kinder to myself, to be kinder to others, and to keep pursuing that as a path. And it's not, it's a path. It's not like a destination. You know, it's someplace I'm actively practicing still, you know. Um, 
I'm, I've had this interest in, like when you said you'd done your first FI, you felt like you were less angry. When I did yeah. my first three weeks of my training, I had this sensation of just love oozing out of my system. Can you, do you have any understanding of what the actual work does in relation to our oh. nervous system and our emotions? What's your hypothesis there? Well, you know, the, the way you said it, you were kind of repeating when I said that I was less angry. And I, I, was, I was not getting angry when I was driving. But I can tell you that after the first summer of training that I went through, I used to have a bad temper. I was angry, you know, and I, it didn't hurt or hit people, but I would, you know, rage and do stuff. And I was walking to, at, my at the time, my girlfriend's house, and I was feeling something and I couldn't figure it out. And I realized that I'm angry. And it was like, kind of like the threshold of what I was feeling got lowered. Okay. So I was able to identify the feeling of anger sooner. But now if we talk about feelings like love or care or compassion, I don't know, whatever word we choose for that, I think some of it comes from actually practicing moving in this slow and gentle way. And, you know, I mean, lots of feelings can come up for us, right? And, and I would say that, you know, I, I've talked about having an idea that a feeling is a complex of sensations within a particular context. So if I'm a passenger in a car, and the driver's just like, driving like a maniac, banging into things, coming onto two wheels. What, what's going on with me? I'm holding on as tight as I can. I'm sweating, my heart's beating, I'm screaming. And what's the feeling? Fear, right? But then imagine that you go on a roller coaster, you pay $50 for this great roller coaster. And what are you doing? You're holding on as tight as you can, you're screaming, your heart's beating, you're sweating, and you're having the best time in the world. And so, one of the things that I think happens for us in the background, and it can be made more explicit, but not to the point where it's cathartic or therapeutic, but what we're doing is practicing sensation by moving around and feeling very small distinctions, the initiation of things, how we start something. And when we do that, we're, I believe we're actually clarifying our feeling life, right? And so now you had a really positive feeling of that, right? But some people are brought to tears by a lesson, right? I found that I it didn't eliminate my anger, right? Because obviously months later after my training, when I was still angry, but I was able to control it, in, in, inter, intervene, with it at a different meeting point, you know? And I, I look, there's no end, I think, to the depths of our feelings, whether it's love or anger or any of those things. So that the question is, how do we know ourselves better through our sensory world in a way that it can clarify what we're feeling? I think, but so I, I, I don't think I answered your question because in terms of the nervous system, I don't have a clue. And you know what, if anyone tells you what's happening, it's just what we believe at the time, right? Because, you know, you, know, you probably know Susan Hillier. So Su Susan was a neuroscientist. I had a student in a training in Sweden 
who always wanted to know what is happening neurologically in a lesson. And I would kind of put him off and I said, Susan, you answer him. So she said, whatever you think you know about neurology, forget it. It's going to change in five years. And I finally posed a different question to him. I said, would knowing that change your lesson? Because probably not. If it does, it's very meaningful. If not, it's interesting, but it's not that important to understand the, the, the actual um, context or events in our nervous system when something happens. Not unless it changes something. It helps us understand something or act, not just understand, act in a different way. So, so, I, so, so two things that you've said. Um, one is the self-image. So mm -hmm. in our first year of training, we really looked at acting and we act in accordance with our self-image, which is one of Moshe's famous timeless mm -hmm. quotes. And it's the, the self-image with being kind to oneself or liking oneself more. What I find um, is so beautiful about this method is the awareness. So being aware of ourselves, because I know, you know, there was a time I was just totally insignificant. Like I didn't even exist. I had, mm. as if my actions had zero consequence in the world. Mm -hmm. And the more I've delved into the awareness aspect of um, <laughs> Moshe's work, that is what I find the most fascinating. And there are now studies to show that it's the awareness that actually makes the incremental shifts and changes in people. So would you sure. like to say more about that? Yeah, I could talk forever. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I think we can talk about awareness in terms of love and anger, right? So wouldn't that be ideal if we only became aware of the loving part of ourselves, right? If awareness, if that was the role and it's what awareness did was that we just always felt better and better and better. Now in the long run, that's probably true, but in the short run, when awareness shines its light, it doesn't discriminate. It's not like you're only gonna become aware of the good things. You become aware of everything and it's pretty daunting sometimes and not a comfortable process for many people to become aware. And, you know, I tell people in my trainings, I say, so I tell them this, exactly what I'm saying now, this is the not so good news about awareness, is that just don't think you're just gonna become aware of the good things. And awareness is also the means to grow ourselves, to develop our self-image, to become more who we want ourselves to be. But that's like still the good part. Now there's worse news about awareness, which is, Awareness is irreversible. You can't become ignorant again. You can't say, you can go into denial about something, but that takes more work than paying attention to it usually. And so awareness is a tricky slope actually. And you know, I would say in terms of the Feldenkrais method, because look, I, I felt this for most of my career in Feldenkrais, and there's a part of me that still deeply feels this. And I imagine people who practice it feel it too, which is, this work is for everybody. It's going to make everyone's life better, right? Except that kind of presumes that people are interested in awareness. And I know, I have friends even who are not very self-reflective. They're not interested in that. They're more interested, the liking themselves, for them liking themselves is getting a new car. It's not about how they move. For them, 
the, the idea of having to deal with or face something that's not so pleasant in ourselves would be, they'd much rather avoid it than encounter it. And I say encounter it because it's an encounter. It's something that is like, well, like when I said earlier, when I, when I think of liking myself more or being kinder, the, the challenges keep getting more difficult for me, you know, bigger, you know? And, and if I look, if I make it really personal, I, I can, you know what? If you give me one second, I need to get my mouse to open something here because I'm I just, just gonna, saw this again. Yeah, I'll just talk to Alan as what Alan's saying. It's really nice that he's actually opened up the dialogue about the work being uncomfortable at some stage. Mm. So um, ATMs and our work is, you know, be easeful. How can you find more, you know, ease and comfort in this move? Whereas sometimes when you're doing, going really aware of yourself, it actually brings up this huge sort of, discomfort that you have to then slowly work through. So I'm really glad mm. that you've highlighted that idea. And look, I, I think I told you this in another conversation we had, which someone in a class, public class once said to me, what's the point of this work? Uh, I dreaded that question. And I said, the point of this work is to make our lives easier and more comfortable. Otherwise, why would you do something you have to pay extra money for? But I left something out. I came back the next week and I said, the point of this work is to learn how to struggle well. Right. And so there are lessons. And this was, you know, in my training with Moshe, there was no distinction between Alexandria Nye lessons or San Francisco and Amherst. He taught in a totally different way from those previous um, incarnations of how he taught. And there were some movements that I could not do at all. And that's kind of, you know, who has some, who has some of the hardest problems in a training are people who are very flexible, who can do everything. And, you know, I would look at them and be jealous. Like, oh, you can do, I can't do that. Oh my God. And they were kind of like, well, so what? And they weren't forced to come up against themselves. And so if we talk about being a more mature human being, as Moshe talked about it, that piece of coming up against ourselves is the place that we can really learn something. It's not to negate the other aspect of it, to have a pleasurable, comfortable life, but to be, able to, to, to be able to encounter ourselves in more challenging situations. <clears throat> so this quote um, is from Ram Das, who I think most of you know who he is. And it's something that I'd seen before, and I just saw it again today, and I copied it because I like it so much. Because for me, this is, this is the real challenge for me, okay? When you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all these different trees, and some of them are bent. You sort of understand that it get, didn't get enough light, so it turned that way. You don't get all emotional about it, you just allow it. The minute you get near humans, you lose all that. And you were constantly saying, you are to this and I'm to this. This judgment mind comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them just the way they are. And I mean, you know, if someone asked me if I was judgmental, of course I'm judgmental, but I have more skills at moving away from it quicker. I don't think Ram Das was non-judgmental. I think his capacity to judge was always there, but he didn't linger there. He would go, why is that? Oh, 
interesting, you know, and just be able to shift from one perspective of judgment to one to interest or engagement and something like that. And so when I talk about the challenges of liking ourselves more, of, of being kinder, that what I just read is that's not an easy thing to do, you know? And what I can say about myself is I catch myself doing it quicker and I can interrupt it quicker, but it's still there. You know, it's, uh, and even, you know, the best definition I ever heard of enlightenment was this, you get enlightened and then you get enlightened again. And then you get enlightened again. And, you know, I think people think maybe the Buddha was constant like that, but most of us as human beings, even the ones I know who seem more spiritually evolved, they have some dark moments sometimes, you know, it's not always sitting on a cushion and smiling, you know, so. Yeah, well, it's actually the relationship too. Mm. So the relationship to self, it's the relationship to yeah. time, the relationship to money, the relationship to other people. Mm. Mm. That's what matters. It's how we relate to um, what's going on in our mind. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the yeah. time. It's funny because today I was taking a class before on Zoom and I have this microphone and I bought this microphone system for when I was teaching online and it was working great. And all of a sudden it started buzzing. And so my relationship with technology is generally pretty good. But when the buzzing happens a half hour before I have to use it, my relationship with technology is rife with frustration. And what am I going to do? And all that stuff comes up. And it's like, well, how do I stay kind of neutral, calm in that? You know? And I actually was able to figure it out. You know, once I was teaching at a training in Italy, and I was supposed to be teaching work in kneeling over the table, that position. And I got there, there's about 50 people, and I had them doing some FI just so I could see where they were at. It was the third year of the training. And I look around, and there's only two tables. And I go up to the organizer, Mara, who's a trainer now. I said, Mara, I'm supposed to teach kneeling over the table. She said, see, see, yeah, that's right. And I said, but there's only two tables. And she went, oh, they don't come until the last day of the training. And I went, okay, I'll work in sitting. That's a similar configuration skeletally. And then I come in the next day and she said, we can't put chairs on the surface on this floor in here. And I went, oh, okay, I'll work in sideline. And she said, you're, you're so calm, I can't believe it. And I said, I'm crying really hard inside right now. I'm pretty miserable. And then the tables came the next day and it all worked out. But it's kind of like our relationship with things. It's exactly that, you know, with ourselves, with others. And, and how, is it, how is it something that feeds both ourselves and feeds others? I think for me, that's at the basis of what we're doing, you know. And Feltenkrais is just one of the means for people to find that a really effective way. One of the most effective ways I've found to develop our relationships in all those realms, I think. Alan, I'd um, ask you now, um, you've obviously met Moshe and you've had time with him and then contrasting 
who you are now. Would you like to share some of that journey with us? And obviously there's discomfort there, but obviously some sense of... Well, first of all, I didn't know Moshe well. I was 26 years old when I started the training. There were 220 of us. And it wasn't like, you know, I had all these conversations with him. More of the practitioners and trainers today from the San Francisco training, uh, Mark Reese, David Burson, Dennis Leary. The, 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 uh, these are people who hung out with Moshe. They went to Israel to work with him and had that, more of that relationship. To be honest with you, I didn't have any clue how to have that kind of relationship with him. Although I often put myself as close to him as I could in the training. And, you know, um, my humor was probably, that's the best way to say it, was a, a really compulsive part of me. And compulsive in the sense that I couldn't, I couldn't not tell jokes. And believe me, a lot of them were very inappropriate. But the funny thing was, when I would be in the room lying around making jokes with people around me, some people would be, shh, don't do that. But Moshe was always egging me on. You know, there was always a feeling of, oh, you know, he liked that, you know. And, and um, I think that that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to overcome. But you know what's interesting for me is when I think about my humor and how I used it, and when I think about when I felt satisfied with myself as a teacher was a big transition that, that happened from worrying or wanting people to like me or like what I was doing. And it was all about that appreciation and acknowledgement to all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, over time, caring that I don't care if they like me. I'm interested in you, you know, and that was certainly something I felt from Moshe. He was interested in us. And, you know, he had other parts to his personality as well, but he was really interested in us. He might be impatient or whatever, but he was interested in us, you know, and that was something that took me a long time to develop. It didn't, I mean, I was a trainer before I felt that happened. So I've been practicing for many, many years and my humor I think it interfered more than it supported anything, you know? I, I can tell you, when I was a new trainer, I was teaching in a training, and I, I was about to tell a joke. And, and then I thought, no, I'm gonna wait. And in that moment where I waited, I kind of felt anxious. And I was a little, sh- like, what's that? Not strong, but mild, I felt it. And then a little while later in the lesson, I think I'll tell the joke now. No, I'm going to wait. And I inhibited it again. And again, I'm anxious. And then the third time I went to tell the joke, I stopped it. And I felt anxious. And I started to wonder, am I telling jokes just because I need to do it because I'm anxious? Like which came first, my anxiety or the joke? Or is it really supporting someone's learning? That's a good example of awareness. That was not a pleasant discovery. I didn't feel good about myself. And what it resulted in was I stopped telling jokes for about, I don't know, six, eight months. And during that time, people were always coming up to me saying, are you okay? Yeah, why? Oh, you're just, you're not telling jokes. 
And I said, no, I'm, but I was listening to jokes. And actually on my website's an article called Humor, What's Funny and What's Not. And it's not a funny article, you know? And it's really, I had to really investigate distinctions about understanding this aspect of myself. So it was, so my compulsivity became something that I could own a little bit and control and not just be reactive as a, as a compulsion can be, you know? And in terms of the, i give you another example of a change that I felt from the training because I was, I was never a good student and I started getting in trouble pretty early on in school and to the point where my parents were taking me psychologists and stuff, psychiatrists, and they would do all these tests with me. And they did one test that I, the doctor said to my mother, he scored very high. And he, you know, he wouldn't give a number or anything. And then my aunt was taking an education course and they needed a 12 year old to do something in the class. And I said, I'll do it for Aunt Flo, sure. And it was the same test. And I didn't, I didn't want anyone to know that I was seeing a shrink or anything like that. So I just took the test and I scored as high as I could, as high as you could in the test. And my mother called the doctor up and said, yeah, he did that the first time too. And I had this high IQ, but you know what? I never felt smart. Not one time in my life that I feel smart, no matter how much someone told me that, it was like, it was so out of, out, it was so di um, disconnected to my own self image. And years and years later, after I studied Feldenkrais, and I was hanging out with Dennis Leary, who's passed away, unfortunately, who was really smart, and another uh, man named Steve Gilligan, who's an Ericksonian uh, hypnotherapist, who's really smart, and I realized, we were staying up late at night talking. And that was the first time I thought, maybe I'm smart, you know? But I'll tell you, up until maybe the last few years of my life, if someone said, you're smart, I would kind of look behind me to see who they were talking to because I still didn't trust it. So I would say, you know, one change in my self-image from the Feldenkrais method, because Moshe was really smart. And if you can follow his thinking, you're doing pretty good, you know? But there's smart that's just following someone's thinking, and then there's smart where we can create something, you know, and actually manifest it. So it's not just understanding, it's the ability to help others understand as well. I think that makes someone a lot smarter. So I don't know, does that answer your question enough? Or, yeah, good. Helen, do you mind sharing more about the actual process of becoming a trainer? Because you make it sound like, yeah, you just kind of become a practitioner, then you become an assistant trainer, and then you become a trainer. But I think it's a little more involved than that. No, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more. And it's different now than it was when I went through the process. Um, so what, to become, I'm going to talk about it honestly. Because to become an assistant trainer is, was and still is to a large degree a quantitative process. You have to teach a certain number of hours of FIs, of ATMs. There is an application you have to fill out. And of course, the training accreditation board reads that and there's case studies in that. And so that process kind of demonstrates an ability to write, to answer questions and the quantitative aspect of teaching enough hours. 
doesn't mean you're good at it, right? And unfortunately, look, there are a lot of assistant trainers who don't work. Why? Well, they, they fulfill the, the criteria, but either some aspect of their personality or their, their understanding of it to articulate it isn't enough that people want to work with them. So it, it's kind of tricky. When I became a trainer at that time, all you needed was three letters of reference from other trainers. And then you were made a trainer. And, you know, it sounds like, well, that's easy. Well, you know, there were political aspects of getting those letters and that was uncomfortable. Because if you gave someone work, could they give you, this is all really gooey, I would say, in terms of how it happened. And then I know trainers who become trainers who never work. Why again? Because either the way they present themselves or the work isn't something that seems congruent with what other people want. And now I was on the training accreditation board in North America when we were putting together the process of how to become a trainer. And you know, it's funny when you're on a board like that, it's very insular and it's, uh, how do I say it? Within the, the confines of the board and our conversations, everything kind of made sense. So we came up with this fairly elaborate process for someone to become a trainer. But then when I left the board, it was like, oh my God, what have we done? This is impossible to succeed at. And later on, when I was on the board a second time, we streamlined that process to make it easier. But it's still, it's not an easy thing to do, you know? And I think that a lot of people get frustrated with the process and they say, well, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's opposite the idea of the work. I feel like I'm being tested. Well, if our work, as I believe it is, is inclusive, that means being tested is one aspect of our work. It's not that we don't. In a awareness and movement class, I'm not testing people or judging them and saying, what are you, why are you doing it that way? I'm creating a safe context for learning. And that's paramount and primary to the method. But as we move along and go through, and it's a hierarchy, through the hierarchy of it, then we have to consider, well, how do I, how do, I do that? And like I started to say, some people go, well, that's just not what the work's about. I'm not going to do it. And you know what? Too often they're resentful, they're, they're um, dissatisfied, and they're kind of bucking the system, but they're not bucking the system trying to change it. They're just complaining about it. Someone is complaining about it. I have no problem with someone complaining, but then what action is it going to lead you to? How are you going to make a difference? How are you going to change it? You know? And because, you know, part of the process of becoming a trainer today is you can actually create your own program. You can actually put together what you think this process needs to be. It needs to be approved by other people, but they're pretty open to taking these things in. And anyone who says they're resentful of the process, honestly, I think they're avoiding the process. So what the one thing that becoming a, an assistant trainer, becoming a trainer is about, for me, still, is how much do you want it? If you really want to do something, either you comply with the existing framework that you have to function in, or you create a new one, right? 
but you have to really want to do it. It's not enough to say, I'd like to be a trainer, you know? And look, people, you know, I have people in like the second year of a training say, give me the information about becoming a trainer. I said, you know what? Why don't you graduate the training first and become a practitioner and do that. Teach the work for a while. See if it's what you still want to do. You're just looking at my job thinking, oh, I'd like his job. You know, there's a lot I had to go through to get here that was uncomfortable, not so pleasant, you know, hard, hard more than anything to study to, to the first time I began a training by myself. I remember it was actually in Brisbane. It was a makeup session. And at the end of that day, one day of teaching, I was so exhausted. I thought I had taught a whole week because part of being a trainer, it's not just teaching lessons. You're the container of this process. And the container means you have to work with not just the content, the lessons, articulating something, providing the material, you're dealing with the emotional tone of a room. You're dealing with the development when someone isn't developing. How do you nudge people along, right? Because a lot of that means taking them out of their comfort zone. And Dennis Leary, who I mentioned before, he said something that, he said it about the trainers, but it's true about practitioners, that a trainer is the person who has to be able to sustain the highest level of anxiety in the room. So that means if the room starts getting frantic like this, I can't join them and go, oh my God, you're right. Ooh, this is gonna... I have to be the one that contains that feeling and helps bring everyone back onto the page again, right? But that's a practitioner's job. You could say it's any teacher's job if they're really being a good teacher, you know, that they're, they're working to, and some people, uh, me for example, I've done that too firmly at times because of my own fear and anxiety, right? And realize, oh, maybe I don't need to hold that tight, that the reins can be a little looser and let's see where the horse goes if I don't guide them every single step of the way and control it like that. And, and still have an educational plan, a framework that moves the whole group along in a certain way. So uh, now I forgot the question and why I was talking about that. <laughs> it was just about how you became a trainer and what to mm. do in the process. I, I think you've yeah. answered that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you something. When I was a practitioner, even though I told you at the beginning, that I was super busy and doing all this stuff. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. If you asked me to explain it, <coughs> I couldn't do anything. But it got to the point where I felt pretty comfortable in that job. And after three years of practice, I became an assistant trainer. And I still remember the first lesson I gave at this training, the FI, I was working with this woman and there may be 20 people watching me and every movement that I did, I went, why am I doing this? I don't know. What if they ask me? I don't know. I can't explain it. And I felt so like back to square one again. You know, it was like, oh my God, the, the, how good I felt about myself as a practitioner. Now I was like back at the bottom again, <coughs> excuse me, as an assistant trainer. And you know what? Then I got pretty good at being assistant trainer. And I felt I could do certain things and say certain things and act in certain ways. And I felt 
pretty confident again. And then I became a trainer. And it was like, oh shit, bam, back to the bottom again. And I felt like I knew nothing. And I think that that's, I actually think that's a normal development, you know, that anybody who acquires a certain title or arrives at a certain place, that's the beginning of their learning again. You know, like the last place any of us want to be is in the coffee break room with new doctors. Because that conversation is like, oh my God, they almost died. I can't believe it. Oh, maybe I should quit. What am I doing? Oh, and then they go out and they're professional again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what you need to do. Right. And inside, there's a whole different world going on for all of us. You know, and, uh, and anyone who says different, I'll tell you a story. So I, ran, I had a number of trainings with Russell Delman and his wife, Linda Delman. And uh, in one of our trainings, Russell was in New York and he was giving a lesson and he was articulating everything that he was saying. And he was doing a beautifully eloquent job, really gorgeous. And I said, Russell, and he went, yeah. And I said, can you also speak to what you don't know? And he looked and he said, I will when I don't know. I was like, and I called him afterwards. I said, what the hell was that? I will when I don't know. You knew every time, you knew every, yeah, you're right. I should have said something else, you know. Now, here's the difference. Here's what a new practitioner looks like when they get stuck in a lesson. They go, And that feels like an hour, even though it's 30, 20, 20, 30 seconds. What someone who's more experienced does is it looks like this. They go, oh, I'll try this. Oh, I'll try this. I get stuck the exact same way I did 40 years ago. It's no different, but I don't stay there. I can move on from there. So when people think that they're going to get past this momentary freeze or momentary anxiety, what a waste of time. It's because you're working to get rid of, how do we get rid of some part of ourselves? I don't know. You know, we just act more quickly. We can move away from it faster. We can, we cannot be stuck or daunted by it in the same way. So. Thank you. That's um, yeah. You've really shared the journey of the complete beginner. And, and it's almost having that beginner's mind always, isn't it? That you don't and, necessarily feel like you're going to be the expert at any point in time, but you just have, I guess, a clarity on being able to reflect and, and work through that a little bit more efficiently. Just recently, I was teaching online in France and I was doing these online virtual lessons with some of the students and there were, the rest of the students were watching. And there was one lesson I was giving and, you know, it looks like when we're giving lessons, whether it's hands-on or verbally, it looks like we know what we're doing every moment. You don't see, when I have my hands on someone and something doesn't work, I just go somewhere else. You don't see me go, oh, you know, I'm what I'm, and Moshe, he would stop and have a cigarette when he got stuck, you know? He would just give himself time to try to figure something out. So I'm giving a lesson to this person in France and I think to everyone watching it, it looked very cohesive and congruent 
and competent. And at one point, the person I was working with said something and they kind of brought it all together in a good way. But then when I was talking about the lesson with the trainees afterwards, I said, you know what I felt when he said that? I felt, oh, it worked, thank God. Because I can't tell, you know? Still, when someone gets up from a lesson, I have to find out if it worked, you know? And otherwise, and that's, that's a real, it's a hard place to demonstrate, you know? Like when I give a lesson in a training to someone from the outside, and then talk about it later. I always, I wish, and I don't wish, I wish that the lesson just would be terrible and not work. So people could see that not every lesson I give is fantastic. But uh, at this point, so far, they've all worked, you know? So it's kind of like, I keep looking for that moment to show you that, that I can fail too. That, you know, that we all need to be able to fail. It's a, it's a criteria for learning, to be able to make mistakes, to not be good. Without it, it's not a safe learning environment, you know, so. So maybe we can do that for you here in um, Australia next week. Yeah, go, go, you go ahead and try. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so that actually brings us into what you're doing now. And you mentioned right at the beginning that you were never quite ready. So now with um, the current status of the world, it's like you've been forced, whether you're ready or not, to do these sessions virtually. What's your experience of how you're now bringing this forward? And do you think there's a future in virtual Feldenkrais work? I think there's a future. For me, it becomes a question personally, is it a future I want? So I'll talk about two aspects of it. One, I'll talk about giving a lesson in a minute. But first, in one of my trainings, they had one month before they graduated. And we, we ran into this pandemic and we couldn't meet, of course. And I got permission to finish the last month online. And th that training had people in it from Hawaii, the, the rest of the United States, Taiwan, Australia. So we were all over the world. So the time zones, we could get like a two hour block where everybody could meet. And I had two local people who'd been very quarantined. And so I could work with them. And I had my office here set up with five cameras and a table and we could look at everything. But honestly, I felt more like I was just teaching technique. And the two things, and I've talked with many other trainers about this, and no one has an answer yet, which is how do you really deal with self-use? How do I go up to someone and say, wait, do that again, but try doing it this way, or try doing it this way. If I've got 30 people on a Zoom class, I can actually call out the person and say, move to the edge of the chair, put your, excuse me, put your feet on the floor. But I can't guide them the same way. And I also can't go over and help someone with the placement of their hands. That, no, no, take the, go bring your hands a little further underneath them, feel what that's like. And say to the person there, can you feel the difference? They go, oh yeah, I can feel the difference. Or I can even lie down and say, do it with me, right? And so, and then I can guide them to do something like that. So now, if the world stayed this way, yeah, we can do an approximation 
of what a training was, right? And we may find developments in new aspects of what a training can be that weren't available before. So there'll be losses and there might be some gains as well. At this point, the gains don't equal the losses as far as I'm concerned. So I just, I have a program that was supposed to begin in May. I've just postponed it again till October. And I thought, well, look, I can't postpone it much longer than that. So then it's, a, but again, I'm dealing with people living all over the world. How do I, how do I make this work? I don't know. So that's one aspect. And the, the, the same kind of thing is true with um, giving online lessons. And you know, it's funny, because when you brought it up, I realized when I started doing lessons online, I felt the same feelings that I described before is like, I don't know how to do this. What am I doing here? You know, and I'm kind of making it up as I go along. And every FI I give, I'm making it up, but I've done it so many times that I have a lot of resources to back me up in terms of what I'm doing. Now with these online lessons, I'm feeling like, I'm really not sure how to do this. And I found that there were some big differences. Like normally in an ATM class, we ask questions, but they're rhetorical. Here, I have to, const I have to make myself ask questions more often than I would in an ATM class so I can find out what the person might be feeling or sensing. And that is like, oh, you have to remember to, I have to remember to do that, you know? And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm building, I think initially the first 20 lessons I gave, I was working more with intuition than anything intentional. And then when I put it together as an advanced training, I only did that at the point where like in my intro talk where I feel like I could start to articulate some of the things that I needed to pay attention to that you would need to pay attention to as a practitioner that, or how you might go about doing it. That's different from an FI. And do I think there's a place for that in the world? Obviously there is because I'm doing it with people. I know other I'm teaching practitioners to do it with other people. I can say from the beginning, it's much easier to do that with someone who's in a training or a practitioner or someone who's been in classes who had FIs because they have a frame of reference for what's happening that's been informed in a significant way already. And someone who's never done awareness or movement before, and this came up in one conversation with the group where someone had the, uh, the idea, of, which is a great idea, that the first time you work with them, don't do a virtual lesson, teach them an ATM. Teach an ATM you like, one that's easy. That's a safe, known place for most of us. Help the person understand the quality of movement and why we're going slower and smaller and finding out how to direct their attention and what they sense from it. And that already kind of, like I said, informs the person of what might be happening, right? And Without that, like, you know, you know, actually the first person who contacted me for lessons like this was a, a man in Western Australia. And this was before I had really given any lessons to my own trainees. So I was like, what am I going to do with this guy? I don't know. So I meet with him on Zoom and I can see some things. You know what I did? 
I just sent him a bunch of ATMs. I didn't charge him anything. It was like, oh, yeah. Do these, see how you feel. And then I believe he ended up working with Julie Peck. And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, work with someone locally who can either guide you while they're right in front of you or have their hands on you and do it that way. And I had a few conversations with him since then. And he said the lessons helped. But, and then, of course, you could see there, that was just my lack of confidence. It was like, I'm going to charge money for something I've never done. How do I do? And even that, I probably spend more time working with someone online in terms of the actual time. And then I send them ATMs to do because I have all these recordings. And um, I charge less than, than my full fee. I'm working more. And I'm, you know what? I'm fine with that. It's like, that's okay. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not th that much of an expert at it yet. But if God forbid all of this world continues like this, and those are my lessons for now on, for the, for the long foreseeable future, I'm going to get better at it. And my fee will go up eventually, you know. But my fee was based more on how I felt, not by how busy I was or how how many years I've done it or anything like that. So that's, uh, yeah, I hope it all goes back again and I hope we gain something from it. Oh, you know, the other thing that I lose in a training or I lose in an ATM class, which is if I'm teaching online, I have one view of the person. They're on their side facing me. I can't walk around and look behind them. I can't go to their head or feet and look at that because I see different things when I get a different perspective of where I view them from. And so that, that's a hard one because no one's going to have five cameras in their house, right? And flip back and forth between them. Thank God. I mean, that'd be really complicated. Yeah. So there's a place for it. There's a place for it. It'd be more interesting to see if, um, like if everything really calmed down, if it went back to what we called normal before, if, people kept doing it online and some, some, you know, some people who like teaching ATM more than giving FIs, maybe they'll keep doing it and maybe they'll be really good at it and they'll teach me more about it, you know, and, and some people will go, no, I'm glad that's over. I, I don't like doing that. I want to do something else, you know, and look, you know, it's a lot easier if you have the equipment and everything set up to do a training from from my house you know I'm, I'm i'm wearing pants don't worry but you never know with zoom right i mean it's something that it can be so casual in something like that but the question i keep coming back to am i giving people what i know is possible and that's the juncture for me because right now i can't give them enough of what i know is possible I could do an adequate job, you know, but then look, what if it stayed like this and people's, people's learning only came from online stuff? They're going to get really skilled at it quicker, you know? And then, but then if we went back to that possible normal and they had to do hands-on, they're going to be at a loss. That's, they're going to have to take some time to figure it out, so... Thanks for that, Alan. Um, in all that, that you've spoken about, you've, you've gone through this massive <clears throat> journey, 
um, now that we're on virtual and since you've, you know, started, but all the time I'm really interested now in the sense of the Feldenkrais community that the community you've built with your, in your own work and how you offer weekly, you know, at the moment, weekly free ATMs um, and in also interested in the community within your colleagues that you possibly have. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, with my colleagues, we're all trying to figure it out. That's, that's what our conversations would sound like. I think like, well, how do you do this and how do you do that? And like the first person who's a practitioner, Patrick Gruner, a trainer, Patrick Gruner in Germany, who Larry Goldfarb interviewed him and he demonstrated his training room with five cameras and monitors and all this stuff. And it was very impressive. And then I spoke with him just personally and I said, so how do you deal with what I mentioned? Self-use. How do you deal with the quality of touch? And he went, I, I can't. Right. So we're figuring things out. And yet at the same time, I could like if you were a trainee and I could watch a video of you teaching an ATM. And that would be I could give you feedback on that, even though I can't see every angle of it, of what's going on. That might be a better use of time doing it outside of class like that than in class. Right. Or if you're giving an FI and I'm giving you feedback on that. If we have a video, what's great about it is we can stop and talk about it in the moment of what you're doing. Again, I'm getting one perspective. So that narrows it somewhat, okay? But those kind of things, like I said, that might be a benefit that we might utilize from now on in our trainings. And in terms of you know, me giving away lessons, well, you know, I started giving lessons away almost eight years ago. And I had this idea that, and now look, I'm, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate place. Right now, I've got 18, almost 19 workshops recorded. So that's well over 100 lessons, you know, because um, each one has seven or eight lessons in it. And so I thought this would be a cool thing to do. But now we're back to that act of kindness, right? And how it feels to give something freely, right? And, um, Funnily enough, my mailing list grew tremendously. And some people would say, but are you selling less CDs? And I said, no, I'm actually selling more. And I think people value a gift and they want to give back when purchase something later as well. And then when COVID started, I, I did two things. One was, and I'm going to do it again soon. So uh, you should go subscribe at my website if you'd like that. So instead of just one a month, I started giving away two lessons a week. And I have a business partner in Switzerland and he's like, should we do this? And I go, the world needs it for God's sake. You know I mean? It's like, why not do it? Well, the worst that can happen, no one buys my CDs again. Okay, great. You know, I made a mistake, but it was not true. Cause the next time I released the CD, more people bought them. But then after a few months of giving away two lessons a week, I had this idea. And again, I ran it by my business partner and I said, I want to make it, you can choose any one CD set and pay whatever you can. That's a novel kind of offer. And I'll tell you, some people paid pretty little. Some people tried to take advantage of it. And 
I knew it because I was getting the same email with different email. I said, this is the same person. And I would just call them on it and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. Come on. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. But they never wrote back. Happened a few times. And some people paid much, much more than what a CD set was worth. You know, and I, I actually called one woman. My CD set sell for 60. One woman paid $200. And I thought she made a mistake and meant to pay $20. She said, I called her up. She said, no, that's what you deserve. I was like, I didn't expect it to go in that direction, you know? And it's the same thing with my advanced course. Look, I'm happy for all the work that our colleagues are doing online, making stuff available to people. And I could set up, I could teach all my advanced trainings from my home. So what's the point? I teach something that you can't practice. That feels crummy. Yeah, maybe one day you can practice it, but now you can't. And that felt weird. And that's why I made the virtual course, pay what you can. And there's been a big range of payment in that too, you know? And I would, I would guess both with my CDs sale like that and with my online course for practitioners that in either case, if I had made a fixed price, I would have reached fewer people and made the same amount of money. But here, I made the same amount of money, but I reached three times the number of people. And to me, that's worth it. Because you know what? It's a spirit of intent. It's a spirit of, that we could use more of. You know? And I have to say, I didn't know Moshe that well, but I didn't, his spirit was like that in an individual lesson but I didn't have a sense of his spirit being like that generally. You know, he, he was, he was, he was not like that. Most of us aren't like that. You're not just him, you know? So how do we give something freely? And look, here's an example of learning and awareness. So I released this, 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 uh, pay what you can for one CD set. And I get a payment that's so small, and you know what my reaction was? What? You, you know how much, what? I, I, and then it was like, I was you know, rumbling, bouncing around my office, and I'm going, wait a minute, Alan, you made this offer. And if it's a really honest offer, that's what they could do. And you know what? People who, some, some, not all, but a lot of them, who paid very little, wrote back saying, thank you so much, I wish I could pay more, which all of a sudden changes. And you realize some people are really in dire straits. They have no work at all, you know? And so why choose or why judge someone from doing it? And yeah, if someone's taking advantage of me, they have to live with themselves. That's not my problem, you know? But that was a learning for me. That's a good example of you create something you think is so great, and then it kind of bites you in the ass and go, well, how, how do I not get angry at something like that. But it was my idea, you know, why would, I didn't say a minimum amount or anything like that. And so, you know, I've made this same offer available to people up until, I, when does this get viewed, this podcast? We'll release it in the next couple of days, yeah. Okay, but I'm gonna make a better offer because I, I have an offer like that. So if you go to my website, www.uncommonsensing.com. There's a pop-up window. You can subscribe for free. You can unsubscribe at any time. 
And once you subscribe, you'll start getting one free lesson a month and one a week in addition to that, which I'm doing now. And then once you're on the list, I'll be sending out an announcement for the same offer sometime around mid-April probably that'll be available for two weeks. Pick any one CD set and pay what you can and you'll get the MP3 recording. So that will be something that's a way of, you know, practicing what I preach, right? So it's not just about these are great ideas and you should do this. This is like, no, I have to do it first. I have to set the example, I think, for something like that. So I that's more about yeah, my I free just, lesson. Yeah. Go so ahead, sorry. Then, so what about the training? Because the training is quite expensive. One of the most, yeah. <laughs> so one of the most common responses I get from people when I say the Feldenkrais training, it's expensive. That's the most common response yeah. to that statement. Right. So yeah. can you ever imagine doing a pay what you feel training as virtual, just as an experiment, because um, you know you could reach more people, introduce people to this method. Has that crossed your mind, and do you think that will ever happen? Well, this is another good example of you put something out, and then someone takes you and goes, "Oh yeah, boom! What about this?" Which is good because that makes us think about it. Now, the pro there's a few issues with that. One is if I did a training that's pay what you can the size of the training is limited, right? And, you know, we're still talking about a four-year commitment. So some of them might say, oh, well, I'll pay $200 for the first year of the training. They may never come back. So their level of commitment is different. When someone pays more, there's a different level of commitment and engagement. That's one thing, okay? The training that I had, I had a training in Colombia in South America, and there were people from 10, 10 different countries, Spanish-speaking countries, and that training was a thousand dollars less. My trainings in at the time were 4,500 US. There was 3,500 US, but the costs were the same. The teachers all got paid in dollars, right? And it felt like a great chance to do something. And you know, I made enough money to do it, so it felt okay. And you know, I thought about it a different way, Dale. I thought, what if, what if I like won the lottery or something? Right, would I do a training like that? And the answer is no. The answer is no, because I know that the more someone commits to something and puts out for it, the more committed they are to it usually. And if it's not enough, they'll, they don't take it as seriously. You know, and, and that's something, but I'll tell you my book on kindness, I toyed for a while with the idea of pay what you can, but as I'm self-publishing it first through Amazon, that's not a choice they give you. And I'm sure when I get a publisher, they're not going to go, hey, would you? No, you can't do. First of all, the ISBN number won't work like that, right? That, that barcode that gets scanned, that's a fixed price. You can't change that, right? Without redoing everything. And so I still like the idea of that. And it's something that I kind of play with in my head. And, uh, you know, if I had the money, to pay the teachers out of my own pocket? No, maybe I might play with something like that. But look, we all run into that in trainings when trainings shrink and get smaller. And you have to, I've had trainings that shrank. And at one point I had to look at, okay, what's the point where I start to lose money? Not make the bare minimum. When do I actually start paying into my own pocket? 
And with one program that was shrinking and I was worried I was gonna get to that point, and thank goodness it didn't, but I thought, okay, I have a year and a half of losing money because I wouldn't give up the commitment to the trainees of doing the training, right? I'm not gonna say I'm not making enough money, so I'm not doing the training. I've seen that happen. People cancel trainings, and largely for that reason. And I think that's terrible, understandable. I don't want to judge them for it. It's completely understandable. But, you know, to me, I would look at it from the point of view of, can I, can I manage to keep this going? For how long? For a year and a half. Okay. So I lose money. I make money in other places. It'll balance out, hopefully, you know. But these are... It's something that's, that's, it didn't surprise me when you said it, actually, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh yeah, that's a good, that's like, that's like my, my fear of someone saying, so are you kind? It's like, <laughs> of course, we're going to, if we put these things out, they're going to come back at us in some way. It's not, we're not free of it when we do something like that. Thank you, the, Alan. That's just... So we've had such a great discussion. I feel like we could keep going. So we, we, we'd be really like to invite you back at some stage. Anytime. We've, great. We've shared this great journey from wallpapering, liking ourselves more, learning to struggle with more ease, not lingering in judgment. Mm. You turn people into trees for us. And I really love that part about spirit and being able to give, but then finding that you can even receive more back. Yeah. Interestingly enough, we get to ask Russell Delman next month what he doesn't know. So we'll get to ask that question there um, and see how he responds then. So thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous of spirit and um, to us. So I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the future. And if anyone has questions, they can always reach me through my website and write me about stuff. So thanks again, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thank All you right. very much. I, I just want just to add that we have, as far as our podcast is concerned, we've changed the format because now in our third year of study, we're, we're getting quite busy. So we did originally have me, Heidi, and Libby all together. So now we're rostered out for the year. So it will be Heidi and Libby next month. Um, and I can't remember after that, but we've scheduled out the year. We're actually booked out until June. We've got some great guests coming up. Um, right. But that's what's happening now. So it'll be two two people hosting with a guest. Great. Okay. And thank, thank you for doing that. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.